Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 37 of the Hyperthesis Podcast. I'm Patrick. I'm Feely. I'm Liam. I'm Zoe. So as you can tell from our intro, we have a very special guest on today. We have Zoe Vestrom, who will be joining us to talk about her interests and her research in geophysics. Uh, We'll introduce more on that soon, uh, but she does study geophysics at the University of Alberta. Uh, I've known her for quite a number of years. She was one of my first friends at the U of A, and her work is very cool and uh, hot, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Literally. Can... Yeah. Spicy. Yes. Very spicy. Uh, but before then, uh, we'll just do some quick intro topics. Does anyone have any intro topics they would like to discuss? I have a, I have a correction from a previous episode before we do an intro topic. Um, in episode 35, um, what did I say? I said that metamaterials are these things with negative refractive indexes, but that's just the specific case of metamaterial. Um, I think that the metamaterials are just defined as materials that do things that normal materials in nature don't. So it's a pretty kind of broad definition. Um, and our, one of our previous guests, Dean, pointed that out to me. So that was episode 35 where I made that mistake. Anyway, just figured I'd point it out. All right. Intro topic. Let's go. Uh, so I have a quick intro topic. It's a little bit depressing, but it has to do with climate change. Uh, the IPCC, or the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change, uh, just released a, a synthesis report of essentially all their different reports. Uh, and it takes together a lot of different scientific work over the past few years that looks at climate change. And essentially what this report said was, we're screwed uh, in the short Uh, In the long, it says that to be under the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit that was set for the uh, Paris Climate Accords in 2015, we would essentially have to stop all CO2 production or greenhouse gas production by 2030 and actually have to start absorbing more in order to not go over that threshold, which at this point is not going to happen uh, given the current state of the world. Uh, So we are not on track to stay under 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming compared to pre-industrial levels. Um, We also aren't on track for the worst case scenario, which is like 8 or 9 degrees uh, of warming, or it might be yeah, between 5 and 8 degrees. So that's good, but we're probably going to settle around 2 to 3 degrees of warming, which will be still pretty disastrous. Uh, So if you want to go check out the actual report, it's extremely long but they also have shorter summaries on their website for uh both the media and for i guess government officials who aren't scientists and don't want to read through a scientific report yeah uh kind of doom and gloom but that's the world we live in i wonder if they did or probably did it a calculation of how much glacier would how much glacier would melt from that rise in temperature and there's probably um, related to how much sea level would rise and salinity is also an issue too, right? If if it's too much, but I don't know too much about it. I I know 
I think somewhere in the report they said that the sea levels have gone up by about one centimeter on average, which doesn't sound bad, but considering the surface area of the ocean, that's quite a bit. Uh, just for reference, if Antarctica and Greenland were to melt, it goes up by 60 to 70 meters. Right, and also the, well, the Dutch people is going to be in trouble. How does that work? Like, I, I always hear that the, uh, the Netherlands is below sea level. How does, well, a lot of it is. How's that work? They build a wall. Okay. okay. I, again, yeah. I've heard that before, but like, how big is this wall? Where does it, where is it? What's it do? I mean, it's, uh, I think they call it a dike there. Um, and essentially it's this very long seawall. Um, I think the, uh, for Liam, the Picto Causeway. But the better. Causeway. <laughs> um, Only like four people on the earth will know what that means. Yes. Incredible. Uh, but, but think that, but essentially along a majority of the coastline of the country. Okay. okay. And, and, that, and that's your protection system. That, is, that would make me uneasy. I don't know about you, but not a lot of protection. Yes. It's like a future Atlantis, right? It's like um, humans, years from now, w once our generation is wiped off the earth for some reason, yeah, it just could be many, and they would look back and they're like, there's a one civilization under underwater. And like, this is Atlantis, but it's just the Netherlands. Well, and it started because they were sinking, and so then they had to like build this wall, but now they've actually moved it way out, so... The Netherlands is bigger than it used to be because they're taking the sea. Oh, <laughs> they're they're conquering the sea. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. It's like that. Uh, was it in in UAE? The was it UAE? It has like the Palm Island thing that they just put put down some land. They just made land because there's so much money. They can just do that. Yeah, we're doing like micro terraforming nowadays. Imagine if like Singapore was was like the artificial land because it's in a way it's not that big, right? Like it's, it's kind of tiny. Imagine you're like, no, you know what? I'm gonna go build a new island and just create a country there. I mean, isn't that what Hong Kong is doing with parts of their um, area? They've actually grown in landmass, and I know they're planning a new airport that is proposed to sit on top of water. So they're reclaiming a whole bunch of land in Hong Kong, I believe. It's strange to say reclaiming land. They're actually like just building land. Just moving land from one place and putting it somewhere else. True. It's like Minecraft. It's like, I'm just going to stack some, some blocks to make an, an, a land on water. Anyway, be, before we get too much into it, are there any other intro topics people want to bring up? Um, I read an article talking about, I mean, I, it was a short article, so I don't have much to say on it, but, um, some scientists somewhere in the world, they, they use muons to kind of image the inside of one of the great pyramids. I think it was the great pyramid of Giza. Um, so they fired muons into it and somehow measured them coming out the other side. And they could like map all the tunnels and stuff in the pyramid. And they found these extra voids, they called them, just these kind of empty holes in the pyramid that they didn't know about before. So that's kind of neat. Um, 
I don't know how good muons are going through things, but I guess that's one way to to measure. <clears throat> At least you could. I wonder how far into the earth you could measure with muons. Probably not very far, right? I mean, uh, this is something that someone uh, who I, was in the same lab that I did my master's in was researching was muon propagation through the earth, especially uh, where Snow Lab is or the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. Because they want to know how many muons are coming in, since that counts as background for uh, any super sensitive detectors like dark matter detectors. And so the answer is not a lot uh, about two kilometers down where the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory is. Uh, so probing to like the center of the Earth is much more difficult, uh, and you probably wouldn't get a very strong signal. Well, I think it's probably about Snow Lab, right? I think they were approached by the military at some point about like having neutrinos as like secret signal to to transmit code across the globe because it goes through everything, right? So if you have a detector across the globe, you can just send it directly to the Earth. <laughs> you just go through it. And you have sensitive enough detector, you get it, but in terms of financially, it's not really, um, you know, feasible, or like it's really difficult to do. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought of when I read this article about like using particle physics to image the inside of the Earth. I was like, if you'd probably only be able to do it with neutrinos, as far as I'm aware, and you'd need really expensive and complicated detectors to do it, let alone to like determine anything, like to come to any conclusions. Um, there's an episode of Star Trek that does that actually, funnily enough. I remember watching it and I think Geordi LaForge is like stranded on a planet with really, really bad electromagnetic storms, so he can't get a signal up to the uh the Enterprise. But um he's like, Oh, I'll just create a neutrino beam with and he whips together a neutrino beam with some pieces of metal or something. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. Kind of funny, but it, it was kind of neat, actually, because I'm like, wow, if, if you want it to get through a really intense electromagnetic storm, like you want to send a signal through, and I'm like, I guess neutrinos would be the way to do it. So I thought that was kind of neat. Well, uh, I guess speaking about probing down into the Earth and finding out what's under there, uh, we'll transition into our main topic, which is featuring our special guest, Zoe. So Zoe is a current PhD candidate at the University of Alberta studying geophysics with Martin Unsworth. Uh, so she works on different systems, which we'll get into. Uh, she'll be able to explain them a lot better than I can. Uh, but I do know the name uh, magnetotellurics, uh, which she's used. Uh, but there are probably other methods that you'll be discussing. Uh, before then, she studied at the University of Saskatchewan uh, with an MS Master of Science in Geophysics, uh, looking at plate margin melt and how it's transported. Uh, and then she's originally from Calgary, uh, so hasn't moved too far north, but to the better city in Alberta, I would say. Uh, and there she received her Bachelor of Science in Geophysics. So uh, Zoe is definitely a geophysics person through and through. Uh, so welcome, Zoe. Yeah, thanks for having me. So what do you do? Um, so my specialization is in looking for geothermal energy using electromagnetics. So there's a bunch of different electromagnetic methods that um, 
you can use to basically scan the ground. It's a bit cheaper and easier than trying to figure out how to use neutrinos. Um, so basically what happens is you have these, um, so magnetotelerics, which is my main method, um, we're using naturally occurring electromagnetic radiation, like literally from the sun. So the sun is making the northern lights, but the northern lights are also making these big kind of fluctuations in our magnetic field, which induce currents in the ground. And those currents are basically dependent on the, how well the ground conducts electricity, right? And so then what we're trying to figure out is, you know, once you have that resistivity information about the ground, you could tell a few different things, like maybe rock types, or if there's water in it, or um, if the water's hot, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, that's what I'm up to, in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of small. Is it that much difference between each? Because I feel like there must be a lot of variance in, in resistivity, just in like one material alone. Like because it, these are not pure rocks, for example. They are conglomerate of things or like they're mixtures, right? They are not made up one type of crystalline structure. Yeah, so we're making big, like basically bulk measurements of these rocks, and we're making like pretty uh, like low resolution images as well. So we're looking to, in my study, about five kilometers, and then our like the resolution is like 100 meters. So in that 100 meters, there's lots of different types of rocks. So at the near surface, we have some clays that'll have like sand and it's really, you know, heterogeneous. But when you're actually measuring it, you only get one measurement. It's like the resistivities, you know, like 10 ohmmeters. Um, but then you have a granite underneath or something like that. And the resistivity is like like 10,000 ohmmeters. And so then that contrast is what you're kind of looking for. And then if you have a fault that's running through it and it's carrying hot water, um, hot, hot, hot salty water is a lot more conductive than a cold crystalline granite. Um, and so that's essentially what we're looking for. So do you just put two probes in and send out a current and measure the voltage? Oh, so it's actually kind of cool. So we have, um, so we have to measure the magnetic and the electric field at the surface, and so it's just a surface measurement. So we take um, electrodes and we put them in the ground 100 meters apart, north south, 100 meters apart, east west, and then you're measuring um, the potential difference across them. That'll give you your electric field, and then you need to know your basically source magnetic field. And so then we have. Um, magnetic like just basically solenoids that we also put out um going north south east west and then the ratio between like the like parallel per perpendicular fields will tell you about um yeah the the resistivity of what's underneath essentially this is the scale that i don't think we ever work with before because you remember in like physics lab you put two probes together, uh, like put on, on like um, uh, circuits or breadboard and stuff. It's tiny, right? And you now you say electrodes are 100 meters ap apart. It's like, well, how, can you even measure the voltage difference? Or oh, does that really mean anything, you know? Because like 
It's fucking two rods of metal, really far apart in my, but in a way, in terms of Earth scale, it's not far apart at all. It's like a dot, <laughs> but in terms of human scale, it's really far apart. Yeah, and what we're like trying to me- like the reason they're so far apart is that like you're measuring these really small currents in the ground, and so if you were trying to measure them close together, the the amplitude would just be so small that you wouldn't be able to like measure it. And so the reason they're 100 meters apart is because then you have a lot more current to to pick up essentially. So the but the current is gonna be form. It's gonna be really tiny current. It's really right? tiny, like, you, like microamps or like smaller. Yeah, I think they're a milliamp. Um, oh, milliamps! That's that's not that, too actually bad. quite a lot. Yeah, yeah. I'm surprised because milliamps, I think, is enough to kill people. Technically, yeah, I think it's more about like the voltage than the amperage. I think in the ground, that's mainly what we're looking at, anyway. I never heard about these method, but it's, it sounds like you know um, when you look at, for example, material like in the ground, you don't expect them to have a high conductivity. Well, no, and they don't, you know. Which is why we always talk about resistivity is because when you're talking about conductivity, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like 10 to the minus five, like, you know, Siemens per meter. And so, but it's like a thousand ohmmeters. That's, as, that's actually really low. Yeah. Only a thousand ohms. Because you can have those uh, resistors that are mil- like a one mega ohm or one million ohms easily, mm-hmm. right? I was expecting like rocks to have a lot of, uh, Resistivity for some reason, which I never looked up the numbers. At one point in your life, you just assumed that they would have very. Um, yeah, just like extremely yeah. resistive. For some reason. Yeah, they're, they're not too bad, I think, because they have um, like a lot of kind of fluid content. And then um, a lot of the fluids that are in them have a lot of like total dissolved solids and that kind of thing. So. I normally think of like resistivity or conductivity as like, you know, how metal have like a sea of electrons, right? Kind of facilitate um, current flowing. Yeah. But when I think of crystalline structure that are made of insulators, for example, like, you know, in rocks, uh, there are a lot of non-metals and stuff in there. So I didn't expect it to have high resistivity. Yeah. I think it comes back to the point that you said before where like, you know, a rock is like you picture a rock and it's like a hundred percent, you know, like quartz or something. But actually, they're they're really heterogeneous, and so then they do have some like materials inside of them that do, um, you know, conduct electricity, and so that's how you end up not having, you know, a like ten to the six or something, um, ohmmeters. So in terms of your work, do you do you do, do you do like analytical or do you do analysis or you do field work? Um, it's a bit of both. So usually we do field work in the summer, and then we spend the rest of the year just looking at the data that we collected because it is quite complicated. Um, yeah, because we it comes out as like this big, well, it's like a time series, and then we have to like do a bunch of filtering to it because there's a lot of, um noise from um, humans basically like we're emitting electromagnetic 
noise all the time. So just trying to accommodate for that and then where you're transforming it and getting it into the frequency domain where we can actually kind of figure out um, what the, how the resistivity changes with depth. Because um, if you have like a high frequency signal, it's only looking at the near surface because it attenuates really fast. But then the low frequency ones, you can see um, quite deep. And so that's kind of how we um, figure out our resistivity structures. Yeah, the electrical noise is interesting because you have 1 over F noise, 1 over frequency noise that is really strong in low frequency. But that's the, I think the reason I want to ask to about like the frequency because re- low frequency, what do you mean low, right? Like some people, I would say low is like te- a 1 to 100 hertz, for example. Yeah. But maybe low is different for you. Low is very low for us. So we sample between like about 1,000 hertz I mean, if you have some fancy equipment, you can get higher frequency, but but we usually sample around 1,000 hertz to um, 10,000 seconds, so that's 10 to the negative 5 hertz, um, and that's basically like dictated. So basically, we install these equipment, we leave it for up to a week, you know, if we want to see really deep, and then the lowest frequency we can get, you can't just like leave it forever and hope that you get like you know, the lowest existing frequency. It's dictated by um, basically the harmonics of the Earth's, like the ionosphere. So like basically you get a standing wave the size of the Earth and that's the biggest, um, the lowest frequency you can get, essentially. So your frequency has to be really low to pick up those type of... Yeah, well, and then for those, like I don't usually work on those surveys like the really deep ones, um, but they can see down to usually like 300 kilometers. So they're looking at like a lot of the lithosphere, asthenosphere boundary is um, defined by magnetotelerics because it does have like a stark contrast in um, resistivity between like, yeah, the, the lithosphere and the asthenosphere. So I think for those who think this 300 is, is, is a lot, I would like to point out that the radius of the Earth is like six. 3,000 kilometers. So 300 kilometers is like a we barely scrape uh, the surface of the Earth. To me, it's like it's weird how we can map things really well. Or like we have a map of like the magma, like, I don't know, the Earth core and stuff like. Oh, but but like the instrumentation, we can only go down. It's not that much, isn't it? Well, so so all of the everything below that. They're only imaging using um, like seismic tomography, which is actually a super precise way of measuring like phase changes. Because basically, like if you have an earthquake and you're making like um, there's like pressure waves or shear waves that that creates and shear waves can't travel through liquids. And so all of those boundaries are are pretty well defined through that, because, um, you know, if you see a pressure wave and not a shear wave, you know that it went through something liquid at some point, if that makes sense. Oh, so we have a bunch of probes around Earth, like from different country and stuff. So when, when earthquake happened, we, we can measure the amplitude of each type of wave and we can map out what's basically what's underneath you very deeply. Yeah, and we actually have like, honestly, an insane amount of seismometers just like around. Um, yeah, like in 
Alberta. I have a friend who works for the Alberta Energy Regulator, and I think we have like hundreds of seismometers just like in in on in Alberta, um, keeping track of every little earthquake that happens. Did they did they just use them for tracking earthquakes, or do they have other purposes? Um, they have a few purposes. So a lot of it's um, so like when we had that earthquake in Fox Creek for fracking. Like when was that? Like seven years ago, maybe ten years ago. Um, they really upgraded their system, and it's keeping track of um a lot of earthquakes and induced seismicity as well. So basically, earthquakes that are below a magnitude four. Because if it hits four, it's probably gonna make the news. But anything below that, they're still keeping track of. So I'm just curious: Are you able to use Magneto Telurics at all to track earthquakes? Um. Not really, but we can use it to um, do some earthquake hazard assessment. So we did a survey this summer on Vancouver Island. And um, one of the things that we're really looking for is like saltwater intrusion. So basically you have the subduction zone and then there's Vancouver Island and you're building up a lot of stress there from the plate kind of moving underneath the other one. And then one day we're going to have an earthquake. And being able to see how much kind of buckling there is and how much fluid is in the actual fault itself, um, that can help with predicting how big the earthquake is going to be. Um, because if you have fluids inside of a fault, it basically lubricates it, and then you can have more movement than you would have had otherwise. And so that's something that we're looking for. Um, and seawater is pretty conductive, so there we go. I wonder if these technology have been used to, well, you said do a little bit of geothermal, but so it also can be used, I guess, to find water underground, because I know historically people have tried to do that a lot, like, and there's some crazy wild stuff people do, it's like, oh, there's like a rod of, two rod of metals and try to point to the where the water is, and it's like, well, I don't know if you heard about that method that actually, like, not, doesn't work at all. Well, so for like gra fresh groundwater, usually they actually use um, like DC resistivity. So basically you put a bunch of electrodes in the ground and then you inject a current because our method, like the, we see from like 500 meters down. So you probably don't want to drill your well 500 meters deep. So it's actually not going to be overly useful, but um. But yeah, so DC resistivity surveys are pretty cheap, I would say, and um, that would be a pretty good way to find fresh water. And um, that's the method they use for, like, there's geophysicists without borders through, like, the Society of Exploration Geophysics. And um, they go to, like, Africa and Bangladesh, I think, to do these types of surveys and they like train people how to use the equipment so that they can find their own water and then they leave essentially yeah kind of cool yeah it, it allows agriculture where there's no like river around and stuff like my friend who has a farm he actually spent quite a bit of money tried uh, hiring like a company who basically find the underground water and they guaranteed it it's like they would keep digging you pay like a certain amount of money and they, you they will keep digging if you do find it. I was like, well, there must be a, they probably have a good way to actually test 
if there are water underground or there is water underground or not. If not, they're gonna lose a lot of money by just digging a hundred holes right on the property. Also, wouldn't be very nice for your friend's property. <laughs> just these death pits everywhere. That is like long cylindrical. So, in terms of geothermal, you know that looks different. It has a different conductivity. How do you actually use that information and and apply it? Um, so there's a couple. So my research area that I'm working on right now, we're trying to basically image, like, so there's a fault running through the area that, so there's a hot spring at the surface. That's our first hint that there's going to be geothermal there. Um, it's on the coast of BC. It used to be a subduction zone. So basically you get these subduction arc volcanoes. Um, but it's no longer. So basically, you have this heat come up, and it's still there. Um, but it's no longer active. And then you have um, a hot spring, and we're wondering where the hot spring is coming from. There's a pretty well-known fault that runs through the area, but it's not very well um, constrained in our actual valley because of a lot of sediments at the near surface. You can't see it or map it um, using geology. And so we're trying to basically figure out where the heck that hot spring is coming from. The hot spring is going to be um, transporting hot water, which, like I said, conducts electricity pretty well. So what we're looking for is like you have, and the valley is basically entirely made out of granite. So you have like a giant granite section with a fault with hot water running through it. And so it should show up um, pretty well where the fault is. And so now they're trying to, based on our resistivity model, which has this little conductor that's running through it, um, they're trying to drill to see if the water inside of that conductor is actually hot or if the conductor is something else. Um, because, yeah, unless you're drilling something, there's no way to tell if it's, you know, maybe clay or something, maybe not actually hot water from the surface. It all looks the same in your resistivity map. Um, but in not my research area, um, in other like hotter areas like volcanoes um, or the Great Basin in the U.S., um, if you get to really, really hot temperatures where you're doing like clay alteration temperatures, what you're actually looking for is not a conductor. You're looking for underneath the conductor. So basically what happens is like you have these volcanoes that come in. They make everything super hot, and then when it's hot, it creates these clay layers that conduct electricity really well. Um, and those are like, and they also work as like a cap rock, like similar to a hydrocarbon. So where fluids would be coming to the surface before, now they're trapped underneath this conductive clay layer. And so if you can see this, like, they call it a clay cap. Um, if you can image this clay cap using um, our method, then you can drill basically through it and find super hot water. But that's like, so basically you're like looking for a conductor, but like for a different reason. So it's like, it could be hot water, it could be a magma chamber, it could be clay layer. Um, and so that's where it's really important to talk to geologists as well to understand um, kind of your setting and what could possibly all these like conductors could be um, 
because it could be a lot of stuff. Oh, actually, like I'm curious. Well, I think it's more for more general audience to on geothermal, because I feel like the the gen general understanding of the grounds, like you know, it's kind of cold, right? Like, can geothermal happen anywhere? Because I guess if you dig big, uh, dig deep enough, you it would get really hot, right? So, but like, is that true? Generally, like you know, because like let's say I want geothermal heating, can it be done? Anywhere is a specific place that you can do it. So the heating can happen anywhere. So have you ever been in a mine? Maybe not. Okay, so I went. I toured a potash mine in Saskatchewan, and I think it was like two kilometers down. It was quite. The elevator ride was quite long. Is all I gotta say about that. And it was unbelievably hot down there, like thirty six degrees, and they had like a fan circulating the whole time, trying to cool it off. Um, so it does actually get quite hot, quite fast. Um, there's only a few places where you can produce electricity from geothermal, but as far as heating goes, um, yeah, the ground is quite hot, which is why we have basements, right? Is because the pipes don't freeze in the ground. So, like, even if the ground is frozen up at the surface, the second you get into the ground, you know, it's, I mean. Here in the basement, it's probably like five degrees, which I know you're thinking that's not going to heat my house. But even if you go like a little bit further down, you get a couple extra degrees, and you can also you can actually heat your house using five degrees. So the the idea is that, um, you know, if we had um like radiators, like you're using water, usually what you would do is you take cold water. You would heat it, and then you would heat your house using it. You know, if it's minus forty outside, and you're heating your house to five degrees, you only have to heat your house an additional, you know. And then they also use it for cooling in the summer. So that's that whole geo exchange system. Yeah, I find like I think in normal people people experience like when you go to the basement, it's usually cooler instead yeah. of hotter. Oh, I I, I just know uh, there's a newer technology. So we've talked about heat pumps before. Uh, where they're able to essentially pump heat with a coefficient of performance greater than 100%. And I think they can go up to like 500% or five times the energy you put into it is extracted from it because it transfers heat between or transfers energy between two different sinks. But they also have in-ground heat pumps that you can get for your house. So they put them like 20, 30 feet underground. And that way they work well at minus 40 or at plus 40 uh, because the ground will stay a pretty consistent temperature. Yeah, we actually have a project in um, Nunavut this year. So I'm going up to Resolute Bay, which is like as close to the Arctic as, as the North Pole as you can get. I think it's the, no, it's the second northernmost um, community. But anyway, um, they're looking to um, get some geothermal energy going up there, not to produce electricity, but to heat their houses. Because, yeah, I mean, they basically ship in diesel to heat their homes at the moment. And so if you can get it from, you know, minus 40, minus 50 to 5 to 10 degrees, and then you use diesel to get you that extra bit of comfort, um, that's basically the plan. Yeah. I feel like if you can dig deep enough to get really hard, you get basically infinite unlimited amount of heating for for basically yeah, one investment 
but then the issue is is that like so every kilometer you dig is one okay it's like a million dollars i think per kilometer is um like a drill pipe the other thing is like then you have an extra kilometer of pipe to maintain and you have to pump all that water so one of the biggest costs in geo like or like energy costs like not actual costs um is like the actual pumping so if you have a geothermal power plant um i'd like the, the so there's a deep project in saskatchewan that they're building and i'm pretty sure 30 to 50 percent of their electricity that they're going to be making is going to be powering their pumps so that's a big issue all right, so you still need to power the pump, so in a way yeah. you have to use some kind of auto fuel, anyways. Yeah. So, so like mm. they're using their own electricity to use it, but then it's like you know, the deeper you go, the less return you have, and then so you're trying uh, to meet in the middle somewhere there. I don't know how geothermal really work. I thought for a long time it was like, oh, you know, I could put like a solid copper rod in the ground and just get it to transport conduct heat up so i have to you know there's no hollow there's no nothing just like bunch of rods yeah so so basically like what like a conventional geothermal plant is essentially two pipes there's like the injecting well and the extracting well and what you want is some porous permeable rock so like a nice sandstone or something at the bottom and then but you don't want it to be too permeable and then you drill these two holes like three kilometers apart. And so you're injecting a ton of water in one and you're sucking up hot water on the other side. And what the water is trying to do is absorb a bunch of heat as it um, propagates through the reservoir. So that's the issue. Like if you have too much permeability, it'll go too fast and you won't actually absorb heat from the rock. Um, but if you go too slow, then you're using too much power from those pipe, like those pumps that we were talking about. And then, so it's a pretty, it's a pretty big optimization problem, um, which is kind of exciting, but pretty tricky. Oh, the process is different than what I thought completely. I thought it's just conduction, but it's actually use water to carry the heat. I guess yeah. that's more. And then you're basically fueling a turbine. Although you do like most of them use like organic Rankine cycle so so you use a heat exchanger to move the heat from water to like a different fluid like a glycol or something and then you power the turbine using that but that's getting oh, maybe a I bit specific <laughs> so i guess just moving on to other work that you've done you mentioned going up to resolute bay uh and i believe a few episodes ago in our intro topic we talked about some interesting results about the existence of subglacial lakes uh and i know you were involved oh, with that scandalous. project a little bit um so can you tell us about that a little bit um yeah so they're publishing a paper right now hopefully soon it's in review um for a project on devon island which was just off of like just across from resolute bay essentially and so they found found quote unquote a subglacial lake um, underneath the ice cap there and in order for it to be there it had to be you know hypersaline which um, anyway so basically they sent out they found it using only radar data so you fly um, yeah a 
helicopter over this um, area and you shoot a bunch of radar. And so they wanted to go back and do actual ground surveys because ground surveys are a lot um, higher resolution um, because you're closer to the ground and you can use like kind of fancier equipment than the helicopter ones. So they used two different types of electromagnetic um, like methods because you can see if it was a super salty lake, it would show up as a very strong conductor. So they used um, magnetotelurics, which is my method. And then, which is why I went up, because I actually trained the field crew. And then time domain electromagnetics. So that's basically you install a really, really big um, wire, which you, so it's, I think they used a 500 meter loop. So they set out a 500 meter loop of wire, if you can imagine it. That's like the size of, I don't know, a bigger than a baseball field, I think. If yeah, you can imagine definitely. it, like probably twice the size of a baseball field. Anyway. Um, it's literally huge, but you're out on an ice cap, so there's nothing in, in your way. And then they put a current through that wire. You make a big magnetic field, and then you shut it off. And that magnetic field is inducing eddy currents, which then propagate into the ground. You have a receiver coil in the middle, which is measuring the secondary magnetic field. Are, are we following? Okay, good. Um <laughs> A secondary magnetic field, and that's going to tell you about like the resistivity structure. Um, and that one is the reason they use that one with my method is that um, you see higher resolution and shallower. So then you can combine them both to kind of fill in the gap. And then they also used refraction seismic. So basically, they're making um, little earthquakes at the surface, they bounce down, hit this. Um, water layer and bounce back up. And if you're having, if you're hitting water, you're going from a solid material to a liquid. So it should have like kind of a distinct signature. Um, so they went out and did that. And ba -ba -da -ba, there's no lake there. So now they're like looking over all the other kind of catalogs for subglacial lakes throughout the world because they've identified, I can't remember, 120 just based on radar data. Um, and so now they're like looking to see, because now they've like reprocessed the radar data and the refraction index. Anyway, the what they use to kind of um, process the data, they used a coefficient that was like too large. And so now they're thinking, okay, well, is this like an industry standard where we've kind of all gone a bit astray that's pretty cool actually it's a bit awkward <laughs> it's really cool that kind of the method you guys used or came up with it kind of like turned the tables in in the in science in that field it's like oh how many yeah, of these are I'm... actually these um these lakes well and i mean that's just the trick is like i think they're gonna have to change those to like hi like hypothetical lakes because i think what you're going to need to do is actually go physically and collect more data. Um, and then I think, yeah, they've kind of developed a method um, of, you know, double checking, you know, before, because they were planning to drill it, I think, which would have been really, really expensive um, and a waste of money now that we know that it's not there. So. Yeah, maybe they can 
they'll, they might I imagine they'll use kind of the method you guys are using and they'll maybe correct their their radar data method they'll fire they'll find an actual lake somewhere underground they'll maybe they'll apply your method determine that it actually exists and then they'll do some other detection methods and make sure that they work and then they can use that in the future maybe I don't know if that yeah. makes sense or not. That does make sense. So I kind of want to move on a little bit and want to hear your story. How do you get into physics or geophysics or even earth science in general? It's maybe a bit embarrassing. My dad's a geophysicist. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, my dad has his PhD also in geophysics. So there we go. So do you were, were you exposed to these since you were young? That's yeah, why you got so, interested in it? so I grew up in Calgary and, you know, I used to spend a lot of time. With, I still do spend a lot of time with my dad and we always go like hiking and he would like show me all the rocks. And then, you know, when I graduated high school, I was like, I think I want to go into math. And then, you know, I actually started out in math and then I was like, uh, I don't know about this. And then, you know, I switched into geophysics because I think. I mean, studying math is really cool, but um, it gets a, like having a direction to move your math studies is definitely easier, yes. I find. 100%. At least, yeah, I'm the same way. I... <laughs> it's like I can, use, I can use statistics if I have a data set that I understand, but if I'm like using statistics for statistics sake, it does not, my brain cannot. <laughs> Well, it sounds like the next guest gonna have We need to have stats person next. Yeah. <laughs> My brother's a statistician, so there we go. I think his master's is in Beansian statistics, and he like uses satellite data to track like building rotation slash tilting. So like when they make those like super tall skyscrapers, they're all moving slightly. And they use, he works for a consulting company in Vancouver that like keeps track of the acceleration of skyscrapers. Well, that's pretty, oh, wow. That's it's pretty, pretty crazy. I've never heard of that. <laughs> right? Me yeah, either. I didn't know they need to keep track of that. And probably for, for construction probably engineering idea. sake. Yeah, I, thought, I thought they just yeah. kind of, before they built, they just kind of look at it. Before they build the building, they kind of like factor all that stuff in. Then they build it and they're like, all right, it's good. And they just leave it. I didn't realize they monitor it. Mm -hmm. I guess with really tall buildings, like the CN Tower and stuff, you'd need to do that, I think. Yeah. But uh, well, and especially when they're built on like sand and stuff, it's, it's, yeah. You never know what the rocks are going to do. Your building could be perfectly fine, but what are you building it on, yeah, you know? Good point. So, in that's so in terms of the paths. So, let's talk a bit of, about the future. What are your hopes and dreams? What do you like to <laughs> achieve or really like to do? Exactly. Why, why, you know, who do you see yourself being in the future? Yeah. I mean, I would really love for geothermal to take off and then I could get a nice geothermal job and change everybody's lives and whatever. We'll see if that actually happens. It looks like it might. Um, I would also really like to work for the government and make like big, like, you know, those like big maps of like geothermal potential. I feel like that would be really cool. Um, Professors? Academia school. I'm not yeah. sure if I want to go. I don't know. I feel like people who become professors, I mean, I want to be a professor, but it's because the stuff I study isn't, it's not like, I, I mean, I could go into industry, 
but the more theoretical you get, the more kind of towards a prof you tend to, I think. And I don't know a single prof with like a nice like work life balance. Yeah. So it's like a bit like, it would be cool, but yeah. do I want to be answering my students' emails at like eleven PM on a Sunday? Yeah, that's kind of that's kind of the route I'm going. <laughs> where the more I'm getting into it, I, I always want to be a prof, but I'm like, you're right. Every prof I've ever met, they have no work life balance at it's all. Like a workaholic. Yeah. <laughs> and I am too, but I. Maybe I don't know if I want to be for the rest of my life. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm a workaholic. But, like, hopefully one day I'll be working 9 to 5. And then it'll be 5 p.m. I'll be like, okay, looks like I'm going home. And then not doing anything when I get home. You know, not like, oh, I'll check my email, you know. But Just from experience, I find a lot of people in, like, earth sciences want to not be a professor uh and i think government job is the ideal place to be where you're you get all the benefits of working in the government but you still get to do science yeah one of our um phd students who finished when i started he now works for anarchan and i'm like oh you need an assistant, please. There, what kind of government of Canada science jobs are there? Because I know there's a lot of like earth science ones, but I, 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 I remember looking into it years ago. I was like, I wonder if there's any like physics positions for the government of Canada. And I think most of them just like boil into like you do math to like optimize or you do statistics to, or you end up just going into like earth science in some way. You could do like cybersecurity as a scientist yes, too. Yeah, that's that's a a newer one, isn't it? Well, relatively. I, I I know the CSA very rarely has job postings. The Canadian Space Agency. I thought Anarchan hired physicists. A lot, a lot of places will hire physicists Pretty just because sure. they can do math and problem solve. You can kind of teach them. Like, like, if I suddenly decide to go do earth science, it'd be a big transition, but I can do math. So, or if I decide to go work for a bank and do business, I can do math. They can teach you the language over a few years, but the fact you can do math, they really love that for some reason. Like, a lot of physicists go and work for banks, or they go and do statistics or stuff like that, or, or like, data analysis. Well, uh, are there any final questions or comments for Zoe? Oh, I have a comment. Okay, so when I was hanging out with Patrick, I don't know, a few weeks ago, he was like, oh, a lot of our scientific discoveries happened more than 100 years ago. And I was like, oh, we still don't know anything about the Earth, actually. Um, so, like, my master's thesis, I always thought that, like, plate tectonics was pretty well established. But then turns out it's only like 50 or 60 years old. And then the other thing is that the mid-ocean ridges are spreading like four times as fast as they should be. And we don't know why. So it's a mystery. The Earth is a crazy place. Earth is much. <laughs> I mean, we don't know why the universe is expanding and on that at note, an accelerated rate. <laughs> we know a lot more about like space than we do about the Earth, I think, though. We do, like, yeah. kind of. There's a lot less stuff out in space. Well, that's a, that's the wrong way to word it. I guess there's a lot of like gas and emptiness in space and and stars, but like the Earth is there's it's really complicated when you zoom in on the Earth and the oceans and stuff. I guess 
Like we've explored more of space than yeah. we have our own ocean kind of thing. Let's go to the celestial structure. It's kind of obvi- more obvious, right? Because you look at the sky and just get data from it. But on underground, you have to find a way to penetrate all these barriers to to get to the data you want. And like like you said, like where's go? The way we do it now to seismic stuff that's like indirect, right? Like that's that's kind of tough. The hard um we can only drill maybe a kilometer so a few more, right? Like compared to six thousand kilometers that we have in terms of radius, that's nowhere near. And I don't think we will be able to drill that far anyways. Like everything would melt. What's the point, right? So we have to find indirect method of um measuring all the stuff that we need to do. And, you know, maybe, who knows, maybe this Earth's going to blow up in, in five years, but we have no idea because we never really drilled into it and see, like, oh, yeah, you know, there's a movie that they go to the core of the Earth to drop nuke. Uh, I don't know which, uh, what's it called anymore. Yeah, there was, like, you had to do to the core of the Earth to drop nukes to it so it, it, so it doesn't stop or something like that. I, m- I remember watching that when I was young. I thought it was somewhat realistic, but uh, imagine just imagine that something's going wrong, and your solution is to just nuke it. <laughs> like let's well, it's the let's American nuke Mars and terraform. For it. some reason, for some reason, in like first year geology classes or like yeah, extracurricular geology stuff, we always watch like the worst geoscience atrocities, and then we're like, "What's wrong with this picture?" And it's like, "What is that movie like?" Twenty. 2020? 2012? 2012? Yeah, yeah. And like the plate tech, like they're like the plate tectonic, like the plate is flipping. It's like, what? <laughs> That's like not possible. The plate's flipping. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, that uh, was called Axo Shift, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. They're like the San Andreas Fault just like buckled off and California flipped over. The like, movie what? I was talking about is called The Core. It says the Earth's going to oh, stop yeah. spinning, so we have to nuke it to get it to spin again. Incredible. Yeah, imagination. Well, it, it seems like there's a lot of mysteries left in uh, physics uh, and in geology and in geophysics. So if you want to go explore and become a geophysicist, whether your dad is one or not... Um, there are some ways in which you can contact our guest and you can contact us and we can contact our guest. Uh, the first way is emailing us. We are at the hyperthesis podcast at gmail.com. Uh, so that's hyperthesis podcast at gmail.com. You can send us an email if you have any questions, if you uh, have any suggestions for episodes, or if you want to be on our show, you can send us an email. Let us know what your area of expertise is and we'd be more than happy to have you. Uh, if you want to reach out to just Zoe, do you have a way people can reach you? Um, you can email me at zvestrum, so Z-V-E-S-T-R-U-M at ualberta.ca. Yeah. Uh, so if you have any questions about this episode, specifically for Zoe, you can send her an email. I'm sure she'd be more than happy to answer your questions. Uh, she has to answer, actually, not so much anymore, but... Lots of undergrad questions, so uh, feel free to be in that lineup. And uh, if you want to contact any of us, you can also find us on Instagram. We're at the Hyperthesis. We post updates about when we are posting episodes, as well as some behind-the-scenes looks and some memes. Liam has gotten better with posting memes, so good on you, sir. 
Uh, you can also pretty find us pretty much wherever you find podcasts. So we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music. We're based out of Spotify. Uh, Anchor FM no longer exists. It merged with Spotify. So we're based out of a Spotify service. But you can find us pretty much wherever you find podcasts. And we are also on YouTube. So there are many ways to find us. And you know how to contact Zoe. So feel free to reach out if you would like. And now we're going to do a a very quick story. um, Extremely quick. And this was actually brought up a bit earlier uh, by Zoe. About how plate tectonics uh, exactly work. And how they were discovered. So the idea that land masses are moving underneath us constantly is fairly new uh, and only really originated in the middle of the 20th century. So the idea of plate tectonics, uh, which we know now is the movement of these large land masses on a less dense fluid um, that's circulating. Uh, We talked about the different layers of the Earth, so it's part of the mantle. Um, that's circulating and moving these land masses. This was really unknown uh, even about 100 years ago, maybe a bit more than 100 years ago. Also, Zoe, feel free to correct me if I get anything (laughs) wrong. Um, However, the first suggestion of the movement of the crust of the Earth was from Alfred, Alfred Wagner in 1912, based on the idea that continental bodies that make up the crust of the earth are somehow able to shift slightly in different directions. Now, he later expanded on this theory three years later in 1915 with his book titled The Origins of Continents and Oceans. In that book, he proposed that the continents were at one point merged together into a single landmass, which we today now call Pangaea, uh, and that these landmasses drifted apart like very slow-moving icebergs floating on a sea of denser liquid material. Uh, He had names for the less dense crust of the earth that was floating, uh, which was called seal, and the more dense sea of liquid was sema. Now, there was some supporting evidence for this um, that was first evident on maps. Now, we didn't have any satellite imagery at the time. Artificial satellites didn't exist, but we had really accurate hand-drawn maps. And by looking at the west coast of Africa and the east co- eastern side of South America, you can see that they kind of fit together. Uh, and there are other instances uh, for maps in which we can see where things might actually fit together quite nicely. Now, there was also evidence of different species existing um, across oceans. So, for example, there were s- certain types of fossil plants that existed both in South America or that were found in South America and also in Africa. And so the fact that these are plants, they uh, don't really like to migrate uh, too much. They, uh, they were found in very different places, again, separated by an ocean, uh, but they're pretty much identical. And there are also several types of mammals and reptiles and other uh, flora and fauna that were found oceans apart but they were pretty much identical and in similar places in the fossil record. So this evidence was pretty telling about the possibility of continents moving. And it was around 1937 uh, that a South African named Alex Dutoit, uh, apologies if I mispronounced that, 
uh, put together a mass of all this information in a published publication known as Our Wandering Continents. Uh, and he recognized the ideas of Wagner and then uh, built upon them using this evidence. Now, these ideas were not widely accepted at first because there wasn't really reason to support the actual movement of plates. We didn't really know the physical mechanisms uh, or the convection currents that take place within the mantle. Uh, and, and so it was just assumed that the Earth was quite solid for the most part. There might be a liquid core, there might not be. But our technology and our knowledge weren't very extensive about the center of the Earth or what's underneath the Earth at that time. It sounds like it's still pretty limited, uh, but we're, we're better than we were 100 years ago. Now, there was a lot of opposition to these ideas because of it. However, as we got more evidence throughout the 20s, 30s, and 40s, there were different discoveries such, such as the existence of a liquid mantle or parts of a liquid mantle, uh, along with uh, the evidence of convection currents within that mantle that may have caused the movement of plates. We also have other evidence, such as the Mid-Atlantic Ridge uh, or other oceanic ridges that exist and kind of are splitting apart. And we can actually measure that split uh, now. And as Zoe said, it's going faster than what we expect. So again, still a lot to learn. Uh, but with the evolution of better experiments and better data taking, we were able to... Um, essentially discover a lot more evidence that very heavily supported the idea of plate tectonics. Uh, so everything from the seafloor spreading and subduction happening to uh, looking at paleomagnetism and how that has changed over time, which can come from a couple things, but continental drift is one of those. And the paleomagnetism is just looking at the essentially the orientation of magnetic fields uh, in a rock record and seeing how that orientation has changed over time. Now, um, it was shown in the late 1950s that there were essentially two occasions that the data proved the validity of continental drift, uh, both by Keith Runcorn and Warren Carey. And uh, these evidence kind of cemented it in place. And as we was brought up just a bit earlier. We noted that there weren't really a lot of paradigm shifts in the last 50 years. This one is just on the cusp, uh, but this was a major paradigm shift where now we saw, okay, there's strong evidence for tectonic plates to be moving on a liquid mantle, causing the plates to shift and the land masses of Earth to shift. That's now widely accepted today. It's not really controversial uh, in the scientific community probably other communities, they have some things to say about it, but uh, generally it's something that's regu regarded as true um, and, and something that happens, something we can measure constantly. Uh, and there's still a lot of interesting research to go into exactly different mysteries that are involved with continental drift and how it's affecting us, everything from earthquakes to volcanoes and if we'll have something like Krakatoa 2.0 uh, in Yellowstone National Park. So there's still a lot to learn about plate tectonics and continental drift, but it's very interesting how recent this theory is and how much science developed within the span of about 40 years to go from, okay, this might happen to, okay, we're positive that it does happen. All right, perfect. All right, thank you very much, Zoe, and thank you, oh, Patrick, for thanks. the story.
All right, then I'll talk to you, you guys, next week, hopefully, or next episode. Take care. See ya. Bye, everyone. Bye.